Hello, and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. A day of theatre in Westminster, but also in Holyrood. At one end of the country, Rishi Sunak unveiled his budget to MPs. But do his plans for reviving the economy add up? We'll crunch the numbers and we'll look at what's missing, in our view. And as he stood at the dispatch box, a few hundred miles away in Edinburgh, Scotland's First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, was being quizzed by members of the Scottish Parliament as part of the inquiry into her government's botched handling of harassment complaints against her predecessor, Alex Salmon. We're going to explore how this intricate and bitter affair could have a big impact on the Scottish elections and perhaps a profound impact on the future of the UK. Well, I've got a terrific lineup with me today in the virtual studio. IFG Chief Economist Gemma Tetlow is back after a very uh, vigorous time reporting on the budget. Hi, Gemma. Hello. IFG Senior Fellow and our in-house expert on all things devolved, Akash Pound is here. Hi, Akash. Hi, Bronwyn. We've also got IFG Senior Fellow John McTurnan, who's been writing on the Civil War in the SNP. He's with us again. Hi, John. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Bronwyn. And I'm delighted that we're also joined today by Torquil Crichton, the Westminster editor of The Daily Record. Great to see you again. How are you? Very good. Welcome from our virtual Westminster, I guess. I guess that's right. Well, it didn't feel so virtual this week. Let's start with the budget. Rishi Sunak is no stranger to the art of self-promotion, and we were all the beneficiaries of an artfully constructed six-minute video released on the Treasury account, uh, Twitter account this week, and it showed that he's not shy about getting in front of a camera and building his brand. So, Gemma, you look at the budget day. Good day for Sunak? I think it was a good day for him overall. It seemed to come off quite well, particularly for a Chancellor who stood up and announced what is the largest net tax rise that I think we've seen in uh, since the early 1990s. Um, but I do wonder whether some of the elements um, that he pulled together yesterday that meant it came off well in the short term might start to unravel and he, we might see more problems for him as the months roll on. Like what? Well, several things. So the measures that he announced yesterday, uh, apart from the, the super deduction for business investments, there wasn't a lot else to help stimulate the recovery from COVID. Now, that, that might be the right judgment, but we could find that economic bounce back is weaker later this year than what the Office of Budget Responsibility predicted. So does he feel under pressure later on to perhaps try and stimulate the recovery a bit more than he did yesterday? But perhaps more importantly, there are policies like the extension for six months of the universal credit top up. Um, That's really just postponed the very difficult question for the government of are they really going to cut the incomes of the lowest income households at the end of September? Um, These plans for public service spending in the budget were also pretty tight. There's no money allocated beyond next year to deal with any of the sort of ongoing costs of COVID. Is that really plausible? Um, And the tax rises that were announced, they were big overall, but they're certainly ones that the Chancellor is hoping people won't really notice and therefore he can get away with. And I think there's a question of do people really not notice as they go on? And these are are big taxes, particularly on business and the business lobby uh, was, um, you know, aghast at higher rises than it was expecting, saying, look, we are the engine of of growth. Do you think he's got it wrong? Is it a populist measure that uh, individuals aren't going to notice this and he's going to... Um, sneak in these very large rises? I think that choice of policy reflected politics in a couple of ways. As you say, people tend to notice less tax rises on business than they do on their own personal incomes. Although at the end of the day, 
people pay taxes, whether that's the shareholders, the customers or the employees of those companies. It, it also reflected the fact that the Conservative manifesto ruled out increases in the, the three biggest taxes, income tax, national insurance contributions and VAT. So corporation tax was the fourth in the list of the big taxes. It really was where he had to look to. But it does mean that the UK now has moved up the table in terms of the average tax rates on companies. And so it it will be more of a a disincentive to companies investing here than if we'd kept the tax rate low. Having said that, um, I think there's a degree to which the many companies felt that George Osborne hadn't needed to go as far as cutting corporation tax back to 19% to, to sort of go most of the way to encouraging businesses to invest here. And obviously other factors such as uncertainty around other areas of policy will matter for business investment as well. We're going to have to see what that means for business investment. And it's one of the attacks that people are already making of this budget, whether it discourages business investment. Talker, what did you make of it? And particularly the, the point about universal credit being extended for six months, at the uplift. Budgets... Treasury budgets are a funny thing now from a Scottish perspective because uh, so much is devolved. Income tax is devolved, for example, or the the rates and bans for income tax are devolved. There are five bans in Scotland, which kind of vary from low to to high. If if you're in a lower tax plan in Scotland, you pay slightly less than you would in England. If you're in a higher tax band, you pay slightly more. But the the tax-free personal allowance isn't devolved. So that uh, freezing on the, on the tax-free personal allowance will affect Scottish taxpayers as well, and they will. Freeze. So what does that mean? It takes it takes more tax from them. Yeah, well, it's frozen at twelve twelve thousand five hundred seventy, and will be frozen at that level until twenty twenty six. So uh, as people's earnings go up, they will uh, they will they will feel the pinch on that a little bit more, I think. But what so the the things that we look at other things that, that affect the whole UK and universal credit for our readership, for a tabloid readership in, in Scotland is one of the big ones. And this cliff edge that Sunak seems to be defending this, he's extended universal credit, the £20 a week uptake for six months, but then it's coming to a sudden stop. He's not phasing it out. Uh, that's going to be going to have a huge effect, uh, you know, putting families, uh, I think it's something like 500,000 people, half a million people in the UK would go beyond below the poverty level uh, in, in winter, and, and that what what is about a thousand pounds a year makes an enormous difference to them. Yeah, it's the difference between food and fuel, isn't it? For for, for many households and um, many working households, remember, forty percent of people claiming universal credit, more than forty percent of people in universal credit are working. Uh, Do you think he's going to um, ex- be forced by the politics of it and by the very live debate on whether universal credit levels, in fact, should be should be higher, particularly looking at other countries. Um, do you think he's going to be forced to, to continue it? The, the, the pressure hasn't stopped. Uh, the Joseph Rowntree Foundation today, uh, the IFS today, have kept the pressure on to extend beyond September. And we've seen with Sunak before, last minute as he is, he does change his mind, you know, when he did extend furlough at the last minute. Uh, he did extend, you know, uh, give more grants to self-employed at the last minute. Uh, I, I think the opposition will scent that they, they can get uh, they can get change in the Treasury. And who wants that headline going into winter? When when furlough stops, remember, unemployment will go up to something like 6.5%, they think, uh, going into winter. And then if you add the universal credit cut on top of that, you're looking at about 
cool, dark winter for some people. That's a really good point about, about the timing of this. John, how do you think Labour should respond to this, something you've been writing about for us? I think Labour need to focus on the gaps. Um, and what was really interesting was there was no real story uh, in the budget speech um, about growth. How is growth going to be achieved? It's almost as if there's a view that the economy has been uh, artificially suppressed for about a year. When, when we get back to real life, people spend and spend again and spend all their savings and there'll be a huge runaway economy. But the, the figure that you know, the figure that the Chancellor was proud of was 1.6% growth. I don't, I can't think of any Chancellor in history in the UK who'd be proudly proclaiming we were going to get to 1.6% growth. So I think it is growth, jobs, greenery, the future. For oppositions, the difficulty is the government acts all the time and they only talk to the best things to do is pitch forward into the future and start sketching out what would a Labour government prompt be about growth and jobs, how would they achieve it? And to just be opportunistic and pick, you know, I think Keir Starmer could, could have done well yesterday by just going, this figure that you put in your speech you've just been so proud about, that seems pretty low to me. Are you sure you've got the right figure? That kind of pulling away at the threads, pushing into the future and accepting it in one sense. You've got to accept the budget day is the Chancellor's day. There's nothing else you can do about it. What did you make of Keir Starmer's response? It was it was a fine response as far as it goes. I would rather have a more quick-witted response, one that actually made a bit more, you know, a bit of mockery. Freeports. If who thinks freeports are a good idea, apart from a few local mayors and a chancellor who wants a rabbit out of a hat? One of Keir's issues is he doesn't crack jokes; he cracks dad jokes. And what was needed yesterday. Uh, I'm fine with dad jokes in Parliament because jokes in Parliament are difficult to do. I think, but a, a, but a, a bit more sardonic intellectual mockery of the style, which as a lawyer he'd be very, you know, he'd be very well versed in. There was a lot to to make fun of in the uh, yesterday, as well as a lot to question. I think that sense that uh, you you one chance to get one big story across, and I, and, I, and, I, and I felt that you know. Labour, in a way, the battle was done in the previous days when Labour had said they didn't think corporation tax should be raised now. And then the Chancellor did that. The kind of Labour's main story was taken by the Chancellor, which is the trap of opposition, isn't it? Yeah, I, mean, it, it, I guess it's, it's, not just, it's not just about the response to the budget this week, but it's what they've been saying for the past couple of weeks. And they've, it, it makes them look a bit wrong, wrong-footed. I mean, Talker, would you agree with that? Well, in, in Starmer's defence, I thought his rhetoric was, was quite good yesterday for Starmer, who's usually very good at hiding his light and his vision under a bushel. Uh, and he, I mean, that was the, the, the emptiest budget box that came to the Commons in a long, long time because so much had been pre-announced, hashtagged and Instagrammed uh, out, of, out of its life uh, before he stood up. So... We knew what was coming, and Starmer was quite good at laying out what wasn't there, nothing on Brexit, nothing on uh, social care, nothing on repairing the foundations uh, for public services on the NHS should we face the kind of year we've had before. And what Starmer was essentially saying is, have we gone through this year just for this? I mean, a lot of people have been uh, off work on furlough. A lot of people have been working from home, school-edging their kids, 
reevaluating their lives almost in the last year. And what Labour has to capture or grasp, grasp onto is that sense that people want to renew things, to change, to change the way their lives work uh, after this. Mm. That's the gap Labour has to fill in the next couple of years. I understand Starmer's caution in not setting out his entire stall before the next election. But I think what we saw from Sunak was manoeuvring perhaps to have that election a bit sooner than Labour anticipated. That's, that's really interesting. Gemma, what do you make about this lack of the growth agenda and lack of the the, the, the vision of the future, which has been the, the main line of um, criticism of this budget this morning? The budget certainly did lack a sort of coherent approach to either which aspects of the UK economy the government wants to try and regenerate or really what it thinks the role of government is in doing that. Um, I suppose in slight defence of Rishi Sunak, this is an incredibly thorny question. We've had incredibly low productivity growth since the financial crisis, and there aren't any easy answers to this. On the other hand, uh, I don't think we yet have a sense this government has a clear vision for what it wants to achieve or how it's going to achieve that, and that definitely is the the gap from this if we do end up with growth of 1.6 percent a year in perpetuity that's going to be a very difficult environment for all of us our living standards won't increase very rapidly year on year and the government's going to struggle to raise the taxes needed to pay for the sort of services it wants to commit to that's that's why i think that you know they may be maneuvering for an earlier budget to go on what john described there this big burst of consumer spending that'll come, the, the roaring 20s, as we'll come to call it, uh, when we all spend on luxury goods after being locked up for a year. But that expenditure, that consumer boom, will highlight and widen the inequalities in society. So these people left behind people, the universal credit uh, claimants, uh, the people who were on furlough and will now be unemployed, there'll be a bigger gap, a bigger division mm-hmm. in society there. Uh, and that's an important concept. An important point. So, Akash, Akash, can I bring you in here? Um, there was a quick reference to more money for Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. What, what did that mean? Yes, so um, within the budget, it was confirmed that there'll be an extra £2.4 billion in total allocated to the three devolved administrations. Um, this is extra money calculated through the Barnet formula. So it's a, it's a byproduct of, of spending decisions uh, taken for England, essentially, with Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland getting a, an equivalent per capita share. So yeah, that's 2.4 billion on top of the 4.7 billion that was announced for next year in the spending review or spending rounds in, in November. And I mean, in, in, in the context of the size of the devolved budgets, these are quite big sums. So, so they are kind of significant amounts of money. However, of course, the the big uh, extra spending that was given to the devolved governments to fight coronavirus over the past year, which which came to around 19 billion, most of that is not being carried forward. So so overall spending by the devolved governments will will fall. And that, that's something you've been writing about. You've got a big big report just out, don't you, on this, talking about how much more money the devolved uh, nations have been, have been given uh, because of coronavirus, but uh, how that leaves them more vulnerable in controlling their spending than it might sound. Yes. So as you say, we just published a report on the Barnet formula, how it works in theory, how it operates actually in practice this Monday. And I mean, yeah, we detail how um, over the course of, of 2020, 2021, 
almost 19 billion additional resources have been provided specifically to fight uh, coronavirus. That money has come at various different points throughout the year. Um, there's often been little forewarning of, of how much money the devolved governments might get as a result of, of UK spending announcements. And that has caused some degree of uncertainty um, at the devolved le- level about about how much money they're going to have to play with ultimately. But but clearly, I mean, that money's been been very welcome and has, has enabled the, the devolved administrations to, to, to fund their own coronavirus responses. And also, as we discuss in detail in the report, it, it comes on top of an existing uh, funding allocation that is pretty generous to Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. So Scotland and Northern Ireland, uh, we show each get around 29% higher or have about 29% higher spending than England on Mm -hmm. comparable public services. For Wales, the figure is about 23%. This is a much much bigger question about how, how, how the UK funds the different bits of itself and how it shares out the money, which is I urge everyone to read Akash's excellent report on this. Let me just ask you one other thing. Uh, the Chancellor also said that a large chunk of uh, the Treasury was going to be relocating to Darlington. Do you reckon that this is serious civil service reform of the kind the government has been talking about? Or is Rishi Sunak thinking about upcoming regional elections? Well, I mean, this is, of course, part of a bigger commitment that the government's made to move 22,000 civil servants out of London by the end of the decade. I believe that's the, the target. The Institute for Government has, has, has written on this recently, in fact. And so this is a down payment, if you like, on, on meeting that target. 750 staff, about 400 from the Treasury, 350 from other departments will be uh, located, yes, in, in this new Treasury North campus in Darlington. I mean, obviously, from the perspective of Darlington, that's very welcome. Darlington's a you know, relatively poor part of, of, of the country, has average above average um, unemployment. So clearly, these jobs and investment are going to be welcome. But why was Darlington chosen? You know, there were suggestions that perhaps a bigger northern city like Leeds or Newcastle might be a better choice given the you know, the, the, the larger labour market, the, the, the greater potential for recruitment and retention of staff for that, that, that the government might, you know, have in, in those places. I mean, I can't say exactly why Rishi Sunak decided upon Darlington above those other options. Clearly, it's going to be welcome news for Ben Houchen, who's the Conservative mayor of the Tees Valley, up for re-election in May. But I wouldn't like to say that that was the only reason why Darlington was chosen. And Gemma, just take us forward to the next thing from Rishi Sunak. So six months from now, should we expect something substantial in the way of an autumn statement? It's a good question. There was a lot of speculation before this budget that the Chancellor was likely to be planning two budgets this year, one now and one in the autumn. Um, I have to say, when that was being talked about, I very much expected that this budget would be much more about extending support for COVID and then dealing with the recovery and that he wouldn't go all the way in terms of spelling out how he was going to balance the public finances in the longer term. So given that he has actually now done that in his budget, um, I do wonder whether it's less clear that there will be a second full budget later this year. Having said that, I think there is so much uncertainty about what 
the economic recovery from COVID is going to look like, that it is very possible that he will find that he needs to do things a bit differently as the months roll on and we see exactly how businesses recover and what happens to jobs. Um, So I wouldn't be at all surprised if we do see further significant fiscal announcements. That makes an awful lot of sense. Well, Gemma, you've been really busy in the last uh, 24 hours or so and popping up in all kinds of studios and, and running our, our budget coverage. So I'm going to let you go. And you've got a budget special podcast to record as well. So thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Pleasure as always. I'm going to keep the rest of the team together as we swing away from the budget and talk about the drama in Hollywood. And I must say, I kept switching between the two on television to catch Nicola Sturgeon giving her evidence, which I found rather compelling. Alex Stammond and Nicola Sturgeon have dominated Scottish politics for over a decade, with Sturgeon succeeding her mentor as First Minister and SNP leader after the 2014 independence referendum. But there has been a truly spectacular fallout. So, Talker, let me ask you a really easy question. What is going on? <laughs> Where do you want to start? Uh, well, are... let's start this week. Let's start this week because it has been going on a yeah. couple of years. I, I guess you could summarize Nicola Sturgeon with what's going on. I'm going on. Uh, <laughs> there, are, there are, I guess it come, they come in twos, don't they? Uh, there were two court cases. There was a criminal court case. Uh, last year at the beginning of lockdown, in which Alex Salmond faced 13 charges of sexual assault, of which he was acquitted. Earlier than that, there was a, a civil action, a judicial review in the court of session, where Alex Salmond challenged the Scottish government, the government he used to run, uh, over the process they used in a, in a disciplinary procedure against him, where there had been two complainants, two civil service complainants against him. He won that case. It cost the Scottish government over £500,000 to fight it. And he claimed in his evidence, among other things, that ministers had carried on, that Nicola Sturgeon and the ministers carried on with that case, even though their lawyers advised them against it, even though Scottish government lawyers advised them against them. And so she broke the ministerial code. He also accused, when he was on the stand last Friday for, for his session, uh, accused Nicola Sturgeon of uh, knowing before she knew. She told Parliament, she repeatedly told Parliament that she didn't know about the allegations against Alex Salmond until she met with him uh, in early April in her home in Glasgow. He maintains, and so do other witnesses, that she was given that information days before uh, and in, that would be another breach of the Ministerial Code. And in fact, Alex Salmond uh, believes that the Scottish government machinery, the, the Crown Office and the ruling party, which of course is run by Nicola Sturgeon's husband, Peter Murrell, he's the chief executive of the SNP, while she's leader of the party and First Minister, all conspired against him to try and basically imprison him to, to prevent his political comeback. Separately, all this, and I will stop shortly, the most dangerous thing coming down the tracks for Nicola Sturgeon is not the election in May, but a report by uh, an Irish QC, James Hamilton, who is investigating independently of everyone else whether she did or did not break the ministerial code. And Alex Salmond has uh, put a, a breadcrumb, breadcrumb trail, as has the committee, of instances where she is alleged to have broken that code. And it's really if he comes down or comes back before the election says, yeah, she broke the code. That 
will be a real danger point for Nicola Sturgeon, although she certainly overcame uh, a moment of jeopardy yesterday by giving a fairly good account of herself. Well, I was very struck by that. I mean, her poise, I mean, it's, it's, it's a class act as a politician to come under that degree of, of pressure and not seem defensive. She apologised for all kinds of things that uh, were not, in fact, what they were accusing her of, but, but got, got apologies and I thought the tone was... I always say, Bronwyn, if I'd been an apprentice for 10 years, I could build you a house. Uh, <laughs> Nicola Sturgeon from 20, 2004, when she first stood, but then withdrew from the leadership election in SNP, was at the knee of the master, Alex Salmond, uh, and learned her craft, her political craft, uh, in his shadow for these 10 years while he was first minister and then took over as first minister. That's not to take away from, from how massively skilled she is. She is. That yesterday was a politician on top forum to give evidence for eight hours uh, without contradicting herself, uh, without stumbling, yes, evading direct answers, giving plausible deniability to some, and in fact controlling her emotions, because you can tell. I take your point about about about, about learning at the, the the feet of the master. On the other hand, the skills she was dis- displaying yesterday seemed to be different from those of Alex Hammond, who is not known always for poise or restraining mm-hmm. uh, emotion. But John, you've been writing about this for the Dundee Courier, and in particular about this thing about whether her evidence was was credible um, and this evidence of of what she knew when, and, what, and including about meetings in her own house. Yeah, I think what's interesting is the tactic that she adopted. So Alex Salmond was calm and poised when he gave his evidence. And he had a narrative. He had an overall narrative to which he attached every intervention he made, every question he was asked, every answer was tied back um, to the narrative he was telling about how it cumulatively added up to the involvement of a lot of people who were concealing documents, but by piecing together you could make a case. Nicola Sturgeon took the opposite approach. She simply, when she was in difficulty, she either mentioned the women, the complainants, who were failed by the Scottish government, or she mentioned Alex Salmond. So hers was always to throw dust in the eyes of the committee. But the committee circled round and round about a core point, which is really, did she mislead Parliament? about declaring dates at which she had actually been involved in meetings with Alex Salmond or Alex Salmond's uh, former staff. And when she and the question really was, what had she known and when had she known it? And the two, the two critical dates are a date in March and a date on April the 2nd. April the 2nd is the meeting which she had in her home uh, with um, Alex Salmond. It, it's, it's famous now because... Um, it's a meeting which she initially claimed she hadn't recorded uh, with the permanent secretary because it was a party meeting. Uh, but her husband, who shares her house with her, uh, naturally, had come home when the meeting was on. He didn't enter the meeting, even though it was a party meeting, because he was, uh, he said, under the impression it was a government meeting. Uh, and the way in which uh, this was resolved, this paradox was resolved yesterday by the first minister was she said, I started this as a, as, a, as a party meeting, but it became a government meeting. And then she gave herself personal dispensation not to record it because it was a government meeting about a disciplinary process. And she felt that her recording it might have unconsciously influenced the conduct of the, the, the inquiry, which is, an, which is there, there is no carve out in the, um, the ministerial code for, for such discretion.
And, and, and as you pointed out, I mean, they, they, her questioners really kept pressing her on those points. They did yeah. not take, accept her invitation to sympathize with the victims or any kind of distraction like that. They just kept hammering away at those at those meetings. They they did, and they and, and they they the first of the meetings, which again she'd had difficulty remembering in front of Parliament, is apparently the meeting which made her call a party focused meeting with Alex Salmond. And at that meeting, which she forgot, she apparently was told that Alex Salmond was was thinking of resigning from the uh, SNP. So her mentor, her friend, her, her predecessor as leader and as first minister, and she forgot that, which is like... Um, it's something you think you would remember. Yeah, Gordon Brown wouldn't forget being told that Tony Blair was going to resign, was threatening to resign from the Labour Party. Actually, let's not go there because both Gordon Brown and Tony Blair both have very different memories of, of who said what about, about taking over. Uh, I don't want to go back into that. Let me, uh, um, let's just get, get beyond the he said, she said uh, for a second. Yeah. I, I was writing for the IFG this week about how this case seemed to expose problems in the whole system of government in Scotland, and particularly what we've just been talking about, the blurring of lines between the SNP, which has been in power for a long time, uh, the government, the civil service, what that does to the role of the head of the civil service, the Lord Advocate, the the government's legal advisor, the Scottish Parliament, and so on. Do do you think it has raised questions? Yeah, I, I guess you can break that down three ways. You know, what effect this has on Sturgeon Salmond and the SNP internally, what effect it has on the independence debate or the constitutional debate, which are the hot issues, and beyond that are the structural weaknesses it exposed in in the Scottish in the Scottish parliamentary setup, which was optimistically perhaps set up in nineteen ninety nine to be uh, uh, less uh, confrontational than it is. Uh, I think the the issues you highlighted yourself and, and other senior politicians, for example, Jack McConnell, former First Minister, and Kenny McCaskill, or the SNP, former Justice Minister, ha- have found themselves agreeing uh, on this. Things like the the separation of the role of the Lord Advocate, who is not just uh, the Chief prosecute, Prosecutor in Scotland, he is also the Chief Advisor to the government and sits in, in, the, in the Cabinet. In Scotland, uh, Lord Wolf, who's been questioned and criticised by this investigative committee, so that that could be looked at. The role of the civil service itself uh, and the blurring between the, polit- the political masters and the impartial servants uh, has been uh, in the spotlight, particularly Leslie Evans, the permanent secretary, uh, the chief civil servant in Scotland whose handling of uh, the complaints inquiry uh, and the, uh, the probe and the decision to continue uh, with the, the civil case, the legal action that Alex Salmond raised against the government have all been questioned. There's a wider question there of what happened to the civil service in Scotland. Remember, it's still a UK-wide civil service. The civil service in Scotland is still part of the, the UK civil service, but has been accused of, quote, going native, in Scotland, and I suppose the most shining example of that is the Independence White Paper of 2014, which was a civil service document uh, proposing, uh, giving the, the, the proposal for independence at the time, which which read in a highly political, uh, highly political manner. I want to bring in Akash at that this point because Akash, you've been writing about this for a long time um, about. Um, devolved administrations about the, the, the movement for Scottish independence and so on. Do you see what we've been talking about as weaknesses of the Scottish government? 
Yes, so this episode has has, has clearly not been a a great advertisement for the Scottish government or or you might say the wider Scottish devolved political system for the the reasons you've all been uh, discussing. And, and, you know, Nicola Sturgeon admitted as much herself um, in her evidence yesterday that, that, as she put it, a catastrophic error had been made in in, in the handling of the original allegations against um, Alex Salmond and certainly you know, the position of the, the permanent secretary to the Scottish government has been put under pressure and there's been speculation about whether she will indeed uh, survive this period. So we'll have to see how all that plays out once the, 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 the various inquiries conclude. I mean, I suppose for me, the question is, does this reveal something particularly wrong with the Scottish government, ways in which the Scottish government is dysfunctional that you do not see elsewhere. Um, I mean, I think I'm a bit less convinced of that. I think certainly, you know, you've had one party in power for, um, well, for 14 years and and pretty dominant for most of that period. Um, Obviously, Scottish government is a lot smaller than, than Westminster Whitehall. So I think one might as a result, tend to see some of these features emerge whereby the civil service and, and political leadership um, do come to, you know, sort of operate almost as a, as, as a single team. But I, I, I don't think it, it reveals some kind of fundamental structural failing in Scottish government. And, and obviously, you know, the UK government has, has had a number of fairly controversial episodes in in recent months we've had a home secretary supposedly found in breach of the ministerial code action not taken the independence advisor to the prime minister resigning instead we've had controversies over the management of, of procurement contracts and so on both relation relating to coronavirus and and brexit as well not to engage in in too much whataboutery but i think uh, one has to be careful before before suggesting that these are, are sins unique to the scottish government right but there is something about as you were describing the smallness of of government in 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 places and in particular the party has been in for a long time, and the kind of questions people are raising now about the uh, incestuousness that may that, that that may come in, and the lack of challenge, despite the uh, efforts of the many um, Scottish journalists and so on. Uh, John, what do you make of what Akash is saying? I think something is qualitatively different in Scotland. Uh, some of it is to do with the smallness of the country. A lot is to do, to be honest, um, with the weakness of the opposition parties. Oppositions keep governments honest. Governments need to fear the scrutiny of oppositions. They've, they need to fear being dislodged by oppositions. But there's an element to the way the SNP runs Scotland, which is very centralising. So there are no elected mayors in Scotland. There is no devolution beyond St Andrew's House, which is the head of the civil service. Um, so that, so the other, there are no, there's no contesting political power the way that even in, you know, the UK, uh, and, and Andy Street or Andy Burnham has got a separate base. As Sadiq Khan's got a separate, uh, electoral base. There's also the direct government funding of universities, which is the consequence of not having tuition fees, which means that universities aren't actually as independent because they all know and 
because they've seen examples of where if you cross the government, there's an impact on your fun, on your financing. The, the third sector, the, the, the NGOs, are substantially financed by the Scottish government and therefore are again bought, brought inside a system where it's harder to criticise. It's essentially the government is run in Scotland in campaigning mode constantly. I think the UK government would like to be like them. Um, and they're campaigning for independence and they built, they're constantly building coalitions of interest. And that leads to uh, compliance, collusion, and at times silence about things. And so I think uh, we are see- we're, a light is being shone into a different culture of politics in Scotland, which which derives mm-hmm. from a set of things. And and I is I think that is the difference up there. And and you can see some, perhaps in the reflection of the most recent poll on independence falling to fifty fifty, people getting some sense. Well, maybe this is what the culture of independent Scotland might look like. So I think there is something deeper, really. I'm not saying it, it challenges the structure of devolution. It says something about the nature of the party that's in power for such a long time and the nature of the weaknesses in the other parties and the way that, that, and the way that things are, are running together. Uh, so this is, a, this is a crystallization of all of that. Talker, where, where are you on this and, and how this might affect uh, the independence movement? Well, it doesn't seem to have affected independence uh, at all. I mean, the polls still show that uh, support for independence has increased in the last since Brexit, which has been a, a major boost for the independence cause. And also, one of the factors is huge, truly, uh, Boris Johnson. And so long as the dividing line is a choice between Nicola Sturgeon and her superb performance there in front of a Hollywood committee or anyone else, all comers, or Bunblin Boris, Scots seem to prefer to prefer independence under Nicola. And as we've been speaking, there's been uh, yet another poll has come out uh, showing again a slight lead for uh, for uh, independence amongst Scots. Fifty three forty seven. This one shows a uh, Savanta Comrades poll for ITV, and this one is interesting as well because uh, it. It asks people, uh, 71% of people state that they believe Scotland would, quote, fare better without being part of the UK. And that's despite these staggering figures, that 29% extra spending that uh, Akash spoke about earlier, despite all that extra money flowing uphill to Scotland, people want to believe something different. And and John's right. Uh, A lot of this is down to the quality of the opposition. You know, Sturgeon is good, but she's only, um, but like Tony Blair, she's only as good as uh, the people she's against. As in fact, as we speak just now, uh, a new star has risen in the West. We're recording this while Scottish First Minister's questions is going on, and this is Anas Sarwar's first First Minister's question as leader of the Scottish Labour Party. He's just been elected. He's their their new hope, and he will. Well, he'll have his work cut out to try and carve a space between these two polarised views, the unionism, the bullish unionism of the Conservatives in Scotland uh, and the, the polarised view of, of independence that the SNP have. Sarwar, st- with Starmer's backing, uh, and Gordon Brown's backing too, want to offer a third way, if you want, a kind of federalist, looser, refreshed, renewed United Kingdom. Whether they get a hearing or not, remains to be seen. Yeah, Akash, you were talking to Douglas Ross, the Scottish Conservative Party leader, in an IFG event last week. What do you make of what um, Torquil and John have been saying about the uh, the opposition? 
Well, I think the SNP has um, indeed, for in, in the ways that the, the other panelists were just describing, benefited from the relative weakness of the opposition. I mean, the, 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 a bad p- opinion poll for the SNP at the moment um, that gets written up as SNP support drops is one where they fall below 50% often in the polls, which often puts them sort of 25, 30% percentage points ahead of their nearest challengers. So yes, I mean, they, they do have, especially given how long they've been in power, a quite incredible dominance of, of, of Scottish politics. Um, and yes, I think, you know, good oppositions make <laughs> make for, for better governments as, as, as uh, people have traditionally seen it. So that's, yeah, I, I, I do see that as, as, a, as a problem. Obviously, it's not really the SNP's fault if the other opposition party, if the opposition parties struggle to get their act together. Yes, we'll see what uh, Anasawa uh, does or how he performs as the new leader, but Scottish Labour's on about its 10th or so leader since the party was last in government in Edinburgh and has you know fallen to to to, to third place uh, behind the Scottish Conservatives. So as you say, then yeah, we spoke to Douglas Ross, the Scottish Conservative leader. He's seems to have been having a reasonably good crisis, shall we say? I don't know if it's fed through into better poll ratings, but obviously he was seen to have scored a bit of a, a victory by, by forcing essentially the Scottish government to release its legal advice because yeah. the no confidence motion they laid in, in John Swinney looks like it was going to pass. And yeah. I mean, just to make one final point on that, that's a reminder that notwithstanding how popular the SNP is compared to the other parties, because the Scottish Parliament is elected using a proportional electoral system, the, SN- the Scottish government position is actually somewhat precarious. I mean, they only have a majority with the support of the Scottish Greens. The Scottish Greens have sided with the opposition on some of these points relating to the the, the crisis we've been describing or the scandal we've been describing. So um, in parliamentary terms, their position is is a lot weaker than, than the UK government's is at Westminster. Well, we'll come back to that uh, or before the elections, I'm sure. But just in a, in a word, if you can, Akash, do you think Nicholas Sturgeon will stay? For how long? <laughs> I, I think for I think for now, I think she'll still be first minister come the elections in May. Yes. Yeah. Okay, John. Oh yes, uh, definitely will uh, survive. Will she be first minister? Yes. Uh, will she get a majority? That's the game that's being played for because no majority it damages her claim for a mandate for independence, which number ten desperately uh, want to be able to slap down in any way possible. Torkel. Yes, the, as I said, the James Hamilton uh, inquiry into whether she broke the ministerial code has to come back. Even if she has found to have broken the ministerial code, the SNP are already talking about throwing that forward into an election campaign and saying, you, the jury, the Scottish people will decide, not the Scottish Parliament, whether she will be First Minister or not. And she's a runaway leader in that race. Right. <laughs> Which will give us more chance to write about the powers or lack of over the Scottish Parliament. Um, we're going to have to draw it to a close there. Uh, for what it's worth, I, th- I think she will also be there uh, as First Minister in the elections in May. Of course, we, it's conceivable we are all wrong. But that is it for this edition of Inside Briefing. My huge thanks to Gemma Tetlow at the top of the programme, Akash Pound, John McTurnan and Torquil Crichton. Brilliant to have you all with us. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, then you're in luck. There's another one on the way soon with Gemma's budget reaction uh, landing in your feed before long. And check out our sister podcast, IFG Live, which has some great new episodes, including my interview with Plaid Cymru leader Adam Price on his vision for an independent Wales. Spoiler alert, it won't try to join the EU. And a fascinating episode on how to build on the success of the vaccine rollout. You can listen to all of those at iTunes, Acast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Please do leave us a review, like the Chancellor. We're keen to promote our brand. Check out all of our work, including all of our budget coverage at instituteforgovernment.org.uk. And there it is, a podcast in which coronavirus hardly got a mention. Let's hope this is a sign of things to come. Have a good weekend.